Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast where we cover everything from crypto trading and investing to NFTs, decentralized finance, and so much more. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell financial products. This podcast is sponsored by CoinFlex, the home of crypto yield. Whether you're an institutional or retail investor, you can earn and trade crypto easily on CoinFlex, which sees over $2 billion in daily trading volume. CoinFlex is committed to making crypto derivatives yield accessible to everyone, whether you are investing hundreds or thousands of dollars and more. With a newly launched automated market-making product called AMM+, you can earn yield on crypto by providing liquidity into the futures markets. The AMM Plus is 10 times more capital efficient than Uniswap and offers multiple collateral types so that you can earn more with less. Interested in learning more about CoinFlex and trying out the new AMM Plus? Head over to coinflex.com slash AMM to get started and let the market work for you. Cool. Hey, Darius. Thanks for uh, joining Crypto Unstacked, the podcast. Thanks for having me. For those of you who don't know, Darius is the uh, co-founder and managing partner of QCP, which is a leading digital asset trading firm, and also a co-founder at Phillips Street Partners, uh, which is an asset management company. Darius, you started your trading journey at uh, Diamond Asia. So just, just so that we know, you know, where did you get the interest in trading from? Because I, I heard that you started straight from university. I had kind of mixed, mixed interests in uh, university. I did uh, finance and religion, you know, so I, I had to pick one. Always had some interest in trading because I uh, started toying with the stock markets early and, and the FX markets early as well. Yeah, I think, you know, I started in university learning finance and, and, and just playing around with the markets. And uh, finally, I picked, to, I picked finance as a career instead of religion. So uh, that's where it started. Fantastic. So did you, does that mean you had some like summer jobs in, as an intern in trading firms or is that where you got the interest from? I had a summer job as a, in a firm called Cambridge Associates. So that was a sort of asset allocator. That was interesting. So from a very, very high level macro allocations kind of a role. And then after that, I had one internship, not, not really an internship, but more like a big project with Singapore Finance Ministry, the President's Office, GIC, to do like some financial modeling for them. So that was a big one. Very interesting as well. So, you know, I, I, I sort of piqued my interest in uh, financial modeling as well as trading. And so when you joined Diamond, you were basically, was it a traditional kind of intern program or grad program where you rotate across a bunch of desks before kind of landing at your, your kind of final or first proper position? Something like that. But as you know, uh, going back then, at least going from uh, school to buy side was, was quite rare. I was the first uh, intern they ever hired. I think before that, it was always, you know, uh, quite senior hires. So I was the first intern ever. So, you know, there wasn't any kind of program sort of thrown in the deep end. But that was good. I mean, uh, sort of baptism of fire. You know, you don't you don't have it in like in the banks where you have a, a junior role. You know, you, you're thrown straight into it. You know, you're immediately executing trades for for the boss. Once once you hit the, the ground running, I did some research. You know, and then was got, got into execution. And uh, I remember my my first trade was a 
250 million euro trade, right? No, that, that was the first time ever doing live trading. So, you know, it was really uh, right into the, the deep end. And so at which point in this sort of diamond journey did you start to do your first kind of options trades? Or was this all Delta One at this point? Or? I think it was quite early on in the, I think by the, by the, by the first or second year, I, I was doing options already because back then, you know, it was only just a two-man execution team. Besides my, my boss and myself, we were doing everything. So, you know, I was forced to do options, rates and, and, uh, and everything from the get-go. So uh, I, had to, I had to pick up or rather internalize options trading pretty quickly. And did you, was that sort of self-taught or by your boss? Because, I mean, obviously, op- trading options is very, very complex, particularly from a risk management point of view. And how, how did you learn that? Options, uh, you know, no matter how much you learn in the end, uh, the, the trading and the doing it itself is, com- is almost completely different. And, and you need to uh, sort of intuitively get it as you go along. So I think it was a more learn-as-you-do kind of approach. It's almost the perfect kind of apprenticeship, right? Baptism of fire. So, and then of course you went on to BNP and in 2017, you set up QCP. What, what was your thinking process to sort of take the big leap of essentially leaving this sort of global kind of ecosystem of finance to being self-employed essentially? Yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't that big a leap actually. It already didn't feel like a leap because, uh, you know, you go from uh, Diamond to BNP and, and the workload's a bit, it's a, it's a little bit, mo- bit more regular from a hedge fund to, to a bank. And then you have free time to yourself. And I started doing uh, arbitrage. I mean, I, I I heard about Bitcoin, but I, I didn't really know what the tech was. But, you know, as traders, you see same product, fungible, the price differential is 60%. No brainer, right? So uh, I started doing the arbitrage in like 2016. And I was making more money than, than I was at BNP. You know, I remember once, once you know, we were doing the arbitrage and, and my, my partner was was on was taking a holiday to, to Dubai. And I was sitting on my BNP desk. I was like, what the hell am I doing here, right? Because, uh, you know, I'm, my, my opportunity cost is so high. So I took a whole week of leave from the desk to go and do the arbitrage. So the, the transition wasn't difficult. It made economic sense. You know, we were, make, we were making more money than, than, than the, the job. So, you know, I was sent to New York. I was in New York for a while. It was being too disruptive to my crypto trading. So I had to choose one or the other. So I chose crypto and I think uh, it, it just made a lot more sense. So uh, it wasn't really that, that uh, big of a leap for me. But, you know, on hindsight, you know, leaving the finance world, everyone thought I was crazy. Back then, I remember everyone was like, you know, you're mad. You know, this is a good job in, in managing the FX desk in, in, in New York and BNP. You know, my wife thought I was a bit mad as well. You know, uh, turned out well on hindsight. No, fantastic. And, and why the move from uh, New York back to Singapore? I mean, you could have set up in, in the US, right? You know, stayed in where you were. But honestly, I, I like Singapore. Singapore's home. I was in New York for two months only. wasn't too familiar with it. I do prefer Singapore to New York. So, uh, <laughs> so you know, it made, made sense for me to come back as well. And so you formed QCP with a couple of people, with one other person. How was it formed? QCP was formed with uh, three other partners. But yeah, I was the only trading, trading partner there. So, you know, uh, I managed the trading and, and, and most of the operations. So when QCP started tra- trading officially as QCP, was this now just crypto? What strategies were you trading? Was it uh, crypto kind of spot ARBs? Was it, uh, I guess, futures were not really a, a big thing at that point, right? Or was it- well, when we first started, you know, uh, we were still doing the arbitrage. So we were doing arbitrage in uh, Korea mainly. It's a little bit of Australia, India, Malaysia. So, you know, we were sort of doing arbitrage all over the cross-border arbitrage all over the place. That went away pretty quickly, right? You know, as markets get efficient, these kind of cross-border arbitrages uh, die very quickly. So we started doing uh, a lot more prop trading. And, you know, the moment there were some, uh, there, there were there were spread trading in futures, uh, 
directional trading, some token trading as well. You know, back there was ICO craze. Uh, that, that was that was kind of fun as well. But yeah, no, it was a bit of everything. Everything that we saw opportunity in, we were doing prop trading, and then we started OTC trading as well. So uh, th- that was the genesis of the, of the operation trading operation. And at which point in this journey did you first start to your, you do your first options trade as QCP? I think this was very early on in uh, 2018 because uh, we had met the Derby guys. Was it? I think it was in, in Japan or something, right? Uh, you know, we met them on those trips and it was really quite random. You know, John and Marius were like walking around with like, you know, who these uh, two white guys uh, looking a little lost, you know, have a, have a chat have a chat with them, <laughs> have a chat with them, have a couple of beers. And you no, know, this was uh, this was so long ago, right? I mean, everyone was just... Uh, Everyone's just trying to, they're trying their best to sort of, you know, make do with, with a small market. I mean, uh, I still remember we were, have, we were having beers in, 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 in Japan and it was, uh, very, very friendly. And then we, I was very interested in what they were doing. Very early on, we, we tried to, to buy equity in them as well, you know, cause I, I, I thought that, you know, the options market is so tiny back then, right? And, and from traditional markets, we know that the options are just massive. So, uh, you know, that's when we first started to, to toy around with there a bit. You know, we were running OTC desk at the time and we had a big, nice, nice, accumulating a Bitcoin balance sheet and we needed to have a Bitcoin balance sheet. We were looking for ways to hedge our balance sheet. So, you know, I was like, mm, makes sense to just you know, buy some puts. So I look at the implied vaults and I'm like, holy shit, it's like 150, 150 implied. I mean, then, you know, we were like, okay, I think this makes uh, doesn't make sense to buy. So we started selling a lot of covered calls and this was in 2018, right? So, uh, you know, I think that, that strategy worked out pretty well. Overwriting calls back then, you know, you probably made more money than, than the actual Delta loss. So, uh, that's how we started doing options. You know, it was, uh, it was crazy vols, uh, very interesting market, very small. That was great. So, okay. So you're hedging your portfolio and kind of yield, yield enhancing, which is fantastic. Were you also a market maker in the options on Deriva itself at that point? We weren't market making both sides back then, usually had, had a side. So yeah, we, we were providing liquidity, but it was more like, uh, you know, liquidity depending on our interest. At which point did you guys basically start your sort of OTC options trading? Because from, from what I understand, you guys trade a chunk of over-the-counter options as well as obviously the, the, the Delta One side. Yeah, no, I think it was from the get-go, right? We started toying around with, with all the listed stuff uh, for our prop book. Immediately, I sort of recognized that, you know, um, as you know, options markets in uh, FX, for example, are almost 100% OTC. So, you know, and the product is pretty much the same. So we started offering, we started offering uh, OTC options quite early on. This was late, probably late 2018. And, you know, we just really copy and paste the uh, FX language and the FX way of dealing over, you know, get a typical ISDA modified to, to do uh, bilateral trading. And that's, that's how we got started. These sort of OTC options now, I, you know, when I come, when I look back to my sort of Merrill's desk days when I was kind of single stock side there, there, there were sort of two styles of, of options, OTC options. One was sort of very, very bespoke, kind of uh, a random date, random time, random, you know, coin kind of OTC transaction. And then there was the listed lookalikes where someone would pick a specific date on Deribit, a specific strike. Uh, and, you know, although they were trading OTC, there, would, there was some sort of visibility to the listed side of, of, of the trading. Which kind of options will you, do you guys sort of do typically from a customer perspective? Yeah, so we do both. You know, we will give runs that have the standard dates, standard uh, expiries, standard standard strikes. Anybody who wants to do something more bespoke, uh, even like exotics, like digitals uh, or altcoin options, um, we can show a run and we can show quotes as well. 
and, and sir, if you look at sort of QCP right now in, in 2021, you know, which, what proportion of your business would you say um, is options versus, I mean, both list, listed and OTC together versus, say, directional quotes and from a, from a customer perspective rather than a prop perspective? I mean, well, I would say probably 60 to 70% options in terms of quotes and, uh, the other 40, 30, 40% is still a, a spot and, you know, local market spot trading. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit out of date on some of, some of the options platforms. Obviously, there's Deribit, there's Bit, there is, you know, OKXs and Huobis. Now, Deribit obviously continues to be the market leader. In terms of margining, are Deribit and all these other exchanges basically, are they kind of progressing into span margining and more efficient kind of portfolio margining? Or is it still pretty brutal from a, uh, from a brutal meaning and expensive from a margining perspective? They have, you know, there are bits on portfolio margining, yes. Uh, and they have, they, I mean, they're always constantly improving and trying to do it well. I think, I actually think it's not that brutal. I mean, it helps that, you know, we are shareholders and we can talk to them and discuss with them and, you know, when we need anything. But I think it's, it's, it's actually pretty okay. I think, uh, you know, they, they provide pretty good margins. Good to hear because, yeah, because I see, I see like the growth in options is obviously growing well, but it's sort of limited again, you know, even in the traditional space is, you know, there are certain countries where generically they would, you know, the retail public would know options like the Dutch, for example, the Dutch would learn options at school. And so they love to trade retail stocks, the Korean retail before they, before the Kospi uh, options um, uh, multiplier was sort of, you know, increased massively. Korea was a great spot, right? Japan, Japanese housewives, another great source. Whereas in crypto, obviously, it's not country specific. It's more sort of like, you know, a global market, addressable market. And, and we still don't see the kind of retail interest as you would do on, say, the perps, right? And so I'm kind of trying to figure out what is it that's needed because I come from an options background like you and absolutely love and live and breathe it as well. I think it's the APY thing, right? Meaning that uh, you have to do... This, this is what I've seen, right? You, you, you Crypto markets uh, love high APYs. So... Options are a bit too difficult to understand because, uh, right, perps are simple, uh, uh, you know, staking is simple, you just put the thing there and you get APY. I think if we are able to break down the options to, to simple, simpler products, right, you invest this, this is the risk, this is the APY, the APY is high, that's it. I think that's the way to get, to peak uh, crypto interest. I, I, I think that's working very well. So if you see some of, uh, if you look at some of the DeFi protocols that are starting to package it as such, they're getting a lot of traction. And I think that's how the scaling factor will come for retail in crypto options. You mean the uh, the sort of DeFi options platforms? Yes, more like the options vaults. That's very interesting to me because um, the speed of the interest there has been very, very high. So this is where they don't, they don't trade options on the DeFi order book. I think... I think obviously, you know, uh, order books without intermediary for, for non-Delta one is extremely tricky. And a lot of people are trying it, but you know, there, there are a lot of issues with liquidations and whatnot. But, you know, vaults where you can just stick your dollars or stick your coin and, you know, sell covered calls, covered puts, you know, and, and many other products that are coming up. We're looking at, at a lot of these. And uh, I think that's where the scale will come in from, from retail because it's a simplified way of trading options, right? All they need to know is that, yeah, this is the risk and this is the APY and the APYs are much higher than what they see. They're happy to do that. Yeah, because, you know, look, as you know, CoinFlex launches AMM products, which are which are a short options product as well. And the, the buy strategy or the sell strategy is a short put strategy or a short call strategy. But the point is that the, the number one question that we get from our trade uh, retail traders or passive capital traders is, hey, you know, what kind of return can I can you guarantee me or what's my you know typical return? And we're like, look, it depends on how much you trade, what the market direction is, the range you pick, you know. 
all these variables and all of a sudden you, you know, you find it, you know, you find some of them switching off. Others, of course, take it like duck to water, but the basic retail entry point is I think they do like to know fixed yields and which, which is why I think you see some of these dual currency products out there, which kind of translates to a fixed number, even though, even though by trading on an order book or by trading on it as an AMM on Coinflex, you could earn way bigger returns than these kind of fixed products. Retail still seems to want to know the, uh, you know, what am I getting? No, exactly right. I mean, when we, when we saw your, your AMM product for BCH, to us, it was immediately, hey, this is a fantastic hedge because we have long, we have long options in BCH. Then the market for BCH isn't that liquid. So effectively, you are giving us, you're immediately giving us short, short Vega, right? I think that's fantastic. You guys should do more of these because, I mean, we have, we have books in Elgo, we have books in Luna, Vol, Solana, Vol. We've done the BCH with you guys. I think we'd be happy to do a lot of these altcoin. It's, it's the easiest form to be short Vega because our flow is naturally long, 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 long options, right? I, I think it's fantastic. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, we're super excited by it and some great response from, from the client side. So we're going to grow, grow and grow this. And honestly, the, the order books that have these passive capital liquidity are by far the most liquid because it's, they just don't turn off. Yeah. You, you, you're just basically trading a short, short, short gamma for me the whole time, right? So. Correct. Correct. And these guys are there 24 seven because they're asleep or they just check on it once a day, a few times a week, whatever their kind of profile is, the constant supply of, of vol, of buying vol through these uh, synthetic orders. Yeah, it makes sense. No, it makes sense for anyone holding uh, holding the altcoin options uh, or the altcoin spot or altcoin tokens, right? Because uh, there isn't any, there isn't much avenue, I mean, to, to, to create a lot of this Vega. No, totally. We were super excited and bullish about it. And, and we see huge growth in potential. Look, already, you know, I, I know we're a central, centralized exchange of AMMs, but if you look at the DeFi AMM daily volumes, we were already top two, top one some days, you know, higher than pancake swap. if you look at what the futures trade, you know, and like uh, last week, the AMMs alone traded a billion dollars, almost 1.1 billion in 24-hour volume on CoinFlex. So, you know, so it, it's a great source. You mentioned only briefly on exotics, but how much are you seeing growth or interest in, say, variant swaps or knock-ins or look-backs or cliques and all this kind of funky stuff? Take it a bit easy, man. I mean, let's start, start with the European digitals. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, let's start with the digitals. And uh, you know, we're getting some decent, decent interest in these. Variant swaps is a little challenging, I think. But uh, we're, getting, we're getting some decent interest in digitals. I think we're starting to uh, pair that up with NFTs as well. Uh, maybe that's a plan. But yeah, I think digitals are quite come quite easy to the crypto community. You know, it's more of a lottery bet kind of idea with a, with a fixed payout. Yeah, I think that is the first, probably the first exotic market that will start to take off. Fantastic. I'm going to come back and revisit this, this with you down the road. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Just in terms of what's going on in crypto at the moment, you know, there's obviously, you know, with stable coins, there's a lot of sort of uh, FUD going on around uh USDT right now. And I was kind of wondering what your general macro view is around the, you know, Evergrande, the Chinese developers, you know, there's kind of the correlation between crypto and equities. I mean, do you think we're just, it's all we just one-to-one with, with the rest of the world now and risk on and risk off? I actually can't remember a day when there isn't thought about USDT, but you know, it's uh, it's, it's almost like being in crypto is, is, is always experiencing fun on USDT. But the, the, I mean, the, the fact is that, uh, USDT remains really popular, right? Because it is unregulated, right? So I think, you know, I think that that, that will continue to be the case. And we, we see that, we see that in, in Southeast Asia and China as well. But macro wise, you know, I think we're starting to see some, some conversions of the two worlds. How the Evergrande, uh, uh, potential default, you know, saw crypto markets tank as well. The fact is, you know, all markets will be connected in some way or other. 
I think it also shows that crypto as an asset class is maturing, right? It's being seen as a risk asset, a legitimate risk asset by 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 the the entire investment community. So, you know, it's starting to move along. So I don't think it's a bad thing. Obviously, there's, there are still idiosyncratic risks, uh, you know, here and there. But uh, it's definitely uh, starting to become a join the risk on, risk off uh, framework as well. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm super bullish in the market. Obviously, I don't know about the, in the short term to medium term to long term. But yeah, I know stable coins as well is something that I think when we met last pre-COVID, you guys were also involved in sort of a, a Korean stablecoin and you're doing a lot of kind of cross-border stuff. How do you see stablecoins are now grown to, you know, 125 billion every week when I look at it, it gets bigger. You know, right now we've got obviously Gensler and the SEC being, you know, you know, super unrealistic about, about some of these points and being, you know, creating kind of uncertainty. But do you see stablecoins growing even further into kind of t- for cross-border payments and in, particularly in Asia and, and the world? So, so interestingly enough, you know, we, we engage with a lot of the central banks on this. You know, we, we are involved in a lot of these forums with the central banks. And, you know, I'm not sure whether you've seen a recent project between uh, Project Dunbar by uh, MAS, uh, RBA, uh, Royal Bank of Australia, Bank Nagara, Malaysia, and, and the South African Bank as well. Key point in, in that meeting I took away was settlement in stable coins is the future. DeFi settlement is the future. So it's something they can't ignore, right? But I mean, it's gonna the the, the way that it gets there is a bit, it's gonna be a bit complicated. I mean, so I, I think I think ironically, um, stable coins don't really need local stable coins that much in the sense that you know having USDT USDC already localizes settlements. Let me explain why, right? So if you if you ha- if you're in Malaysia and you need to pay somebody in China, right? The typical way is you take ringgit, you go to the bank, you cross a big ringgit renminbi spread. And then it takes two days to settle and everything. What, what, what stablecoins do actually, it localizes settlement in that now because of stablecoins, this ringgit, a guy who wants to pay a, his supplier in, in, in China, he does an internal domestic transfer of ringgit to a OTC guy for us, for example. So it becomes an instant transfer, a domestic transfer that's instant. In most countries, that's digitized already anyway, right? It doesn't need to be in a stablecoin form, but it's digitized. Do a fast transfer. He changes the uh, ringgit for USDT or USDC. And then, you know, he sends the USDT or USDT, USDC to his supplier. So the cross-border element is in, is in stablecoin, but the actual transfer is localized. So you can see how uh, you don't need a local stablecoin because, uh, you know, either in U- either US dollars or, you know, uh, let's say renminbi, you know, that's why they're trying to push out their, their digital renminbi. Right? So, so the, the, settlement, the settlement currency can do the cross-border, but everything else, the local currency can be, sta- can be uh, localized. And I think that, that's, that, that is something that we saw, like, Way before, right? Before, like even 2019, 2018, that this was becoming the way that people are going to settle because it's just so much easier. You don't have to deal with the banks. You don't have to, all you have to do is just local transfer. Everything's fast, efficient. And I think that's the way the world is going to go, whether people like it or not. Yeah, look, I, I do completely agree with you. There's, a, I guess there's one, th- one problem for, you know, it's great if you're a, a big customer, a, a corporate high net worth and deal with QCP to do the, the OTC of, Local to to stablecoin, but but you know if you're a general general public in uh, something that you know our retail customers generally have issues, it's very hard for them to get into say USDC or Tether, right? You know, there's a they have to find a local P2P or find a local exchange and go through the whole pain points. So that's the only negative is kind of the the UX of this right now. And once that gets solved, you know, DeFi could be a great solution for this. You know. Um, where the sort of exchanges will automatically take uh, take your fiat and and I think there's a system in the in the US I forget the name between uh, 
there's a DeFi platform that's linked to Coinbase where you can send your fiat to, you know, to Coinbase and they kind of credit you the USDC. Something like that in our Asian markets will make a huge difference because, you know, when I read about Filipino citizens sending smooth love portions back to back and forth to each other it's you know it's good <laughs> i laugh in one sense because it was like the most ridiculous thing i've heard but on the same hand i know why stable coins are really going to work by just watching that you know so uh, no for sure 100% i think adoption for stable coins in, in asia is right and, and you're right about that right we, we do need uh, better gateways better ramps but i think those will come i mean this is uh, you know the interest is there so, you know, sort of uh, demand will be get the supply. So um, I, I'm very confident that, you know, in five years from now, stablecoin will become not something that crypto natives do, but something that everyone does. This is awesome chatting to you. And just a final to round it off. So I read somewhere at QCP, uh, it's like obviously one of the largest crypto businesses trading firms now, particularly in Asia, but you're still, it's only principal capital. Is that correct? Yeah, we, we have never raised money. I think we're one of the, the, the only large OTCs that have never raised but that, that could change, right? I mean, uh, you know, I think the, the adoption curve in terms of institutional trading is, is going very, very exponentially. I'm sure that, I'm sure you guys see the kind of interest as well. We are trying to invest more and, and, and in our own company infrastructure and in, in uh, you know, building out our businesses. But it's still principal money. We have launched an asset management company called Philip Street Partners that you mentioned. We will be launching a macro strategy digital macro strategy as well as a VC strategy. So we will be we will, we will start to raise, but more in a fund management setting. But yeah, uh, you know, I think QCB itself has never, you know, raised any equity, but, you know, that could change in the future. I mean, look, taking outside money comes with a lot of responsibilities in both from a reporting perspective and, you know, transparency perspective. But, but it's good that, you know, trusted players step into this space here because, I mean, you know, here in Hong Kong, for example, you, you know, see a lot of funds raising money and you don't really know who's, you know, what the strategies are. Or I, I don't personally, I mean, and or, you know, because there's a lot of names coming out from, from the traditional space. Now, this might be really, really good traders and it's great for the industry, but it's just, you know, it's, it's when you see established players growing it, you know, you feel a lot, feel a lot more comfortable. You know? no, but I mean, I, I think the interesting thing about crypto is that you know it's, it's democratic enough such that hedge fund money managers, right, are pit against a DeFi, which has a very you know very high hurdle rate, right. So you know uh, they they are forced to earn their keep, right, because uh you know the the risk free rate is is dual digit. So it's much more interesting in terms of uh, the way money managers have to look at risk and you know uh, perform as well. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the old school money managers like the Alan Howards of the world, you know, like kind of coming in more and more into crypto, which is fascinating too, right? They're taking a bunch of stakes in exchanges. Uh, you know, they've got their own trading arms. So uh, it's, it's really cool that the space is growing. And, and it's not just that, you know, when I first started, which was only, I'm way a little bit similar to your time, I guess, early 17. It was all about just like, you know, pumps and directional stuff, you know, whereas now this whole system, ecosystem, by you know around yield and yield products and passive investing and active investing and it's it's maturing nicely. No, I know the, the convergence is really interesting, right? And I think there's a lot of exciting things uh, coming up for all for all of us. Absolutely, Darius has been fantastic. Thank you so much for making the time and and coming onto Crypto Unstacked. No, thank you, thank you. It was good to be here.